You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. You just simply open up the cage and it defends itself. Well, that's how Scripture is. I don't, I don't have to defend Scripture and I don't have to be eloquent or explain it in deep, deep theological terms. Scripture does that for itself because it's the truth of God, right? It's the word of Christ himself for us. So I was excited this morning to be in the text we're in. I, I was excited to, and always just warms my heart when baptisms happen. Like, it's just one of my favorite things. I don't get quite as emotional as my wife who cries at every baptism. It doesn't matter if she knows the person or not. She just cries at baptisms. Um, I, on the other hand, I'm the guy who cries at the, uh, the videos of kids when their uh, dads come home like soldiers. Every time... Every time, just, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 11 and 12. And so last week, uh, Mike walked through all of the plagues but one and three chapters in the course of 55 minutes. So, temper your expectations. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of text to cover in a short amount of time. And I've got a lot of text to cover this morning in a short amount of time. Uh, and so we're going to do our best to walk through it. So this is what it says. I want to just read the beginning of chapter 11 here. Um, and then we'll pause. And I'd like to give you a kind of an idea of the flow of this morning, how we're going to work through this passage. We're going to look at the significance of the plague itself, which is what kind of happens between verse 1 and verse 10 of chapter 11. And then we're going to look at verse uh, chapter 12 and kind of work our way through and look at the symbolism applied, right? So we're going to look at the actual event itself, and then we're going to look at, what do we take away from this? What do we see in this? What does this mean for us? Because I don't know about you, but despite my beard, I am not Jewish uh, and have no Jewish relatives. My last name is Darty, and I come from, my family comes from Northern Ireland, the Protestant part. Uh, We run deep, okay? (laughs) Lutherans, Episcopals, Protestants, um, so, it, for me, I, I, I don't know a lot about uh, Judaism. And so, don't look for me to, to somehow know all of the deep theologies of the Jewish faith. But we're going to look at the symbolism, how that applies to us as non-Israelites. And so, chapter 11 says in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. <coughs> Excuse me. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
And all, these pe- all of these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out to Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his hand. I'm going to pray and we'll get into this. God, this morning as we walk through this familiar passage, God, of the story of Exodus, one we've seen in movies and books and stories from modern day all the way back, God, that we may be renewed afresh by your word, that we may see and be reminded of your graciousness and your mercy and your mighty salvation for your people. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing I want us to see this morning, so if you're a note taker, first thing this morning is these aren't just wonders, right? These plagues that we've looked through, these aren't just wonders. They're blows to the enemy. They're blows to the enemy, right? The word that we see for plague there, uh, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but it's negah. And it means in Hebrew, a strike or a blow. So as God is speaking to Moses, these plagues that he's talking about, he's saying these are strikes and blows. Like These are body blows. They're also shots setting up for a haymaker. This is that haymaker, right? The last plague. This is it. This is the big one. I don't know if any of you guys uh, are, are fighting fans. How many of you guys watch UFC or boxing or WWE back in the day? That's what I, I grew up on WCW because uh, WWE was too dirty. So, you know, Hulk Hogan, Sting, the Macho Man, Randy Savage. Ooh, yeah. Right? But I, I like watching UFC fighting. It's a little gruesome for some folks to watch grown men punch each other to unconsciousness. I find it entertaining. I don't, it's just, that's just me. But if you watch any of these fights, the best fights are always one where the guys are exchanging blows back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, not just the ones where they throw a haymaker out of nowhere and knock someone unconscious. Right? That's not the typical. The typical is they go blow by blow by blow. And if you watch them, sometimes you're like, well, this is boring. The first two rounds, it's just kind of bink, bink, kick, bink. And you're like, what are they doing? Until you realize that some of these little tiny like blows are setting up a death blow. So I got a picture, if you'll throw that picture up. Uh, yeah, okay. So this is a guy named Uriah Faber. He's a UFC fighter. That's him on the left. That's his leg. Sorry. That's him on the right. That's his leg on the left. It's backwards up there on the screen behind um, Though Those bruises, he busted blood vessels and tore a tendon in his leg simply by his opponent, Jose Aldo, kicking him like this in the thigh. Like 35 times in the fight. Just, and it looks simple. They're fighting, and he's like, bam. And then they punch some more, and then bam. And then they punch some more. It looks like nothing until you see the guy. He, worked, he walked on crutches for two weeks. Because he couldn't, his leg was double the size in his thigh than his other thigh. Insane. Well, what is that? That's a blow, right? And in boxing, the best blows are they go body, 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 and then all of a sudden, once the guy gets real tired of the midsection, whoom, there comes the haymaker, and the guy drops, right? This is what God is doing to Egypt. He's giving them blow by blow by blow, and he's setting up for this final plague. He's setting up for something that's going to just totally wreck Egypt and, in a sense, wreck Israel. It, it changes the game for the nation of Israel. 
Why? Well, because it, it sets up a whole future existence for the people of God. Right? This is the prerequisite for the sacrificial system. This is, the, this is the, the game changer for everything that Israel will live by until even now. Right? Their whole foundation as a people is based off the fact that God is going to free them from slavery and set them apart as a nation. Right? These previous blows have weakened Pharaoh. But God is going to break him with this one. He's going to break him. Right? It says down here in a few verses, it says he's making a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Right? He's drawing the line here. At this point in time, all of the plagues have been here and kind of affected loosely everyone. Right? The people of Israel were in, were in Egypt with all the other plagues. They experienced them. But this one, if they are obedient, this plague doesn't affect Israel, right? The people of God, the, the nation of Israel, they're, if they're obedient, this isn't going to mess with them. But for everyone else, this is life-shattering. Right? How many of you guys have, have lived through something where, you know, you've had a, a flood in your house, or you've had a, an appliance break, and you're like, well, this is a lot of money, or you have a car wreck, and you have to deal with that? Well, those things pale in comparison to when someone in your family dies. Right? The nation of Israel has been inconvenienced to this point. Or the nation of Egypt has been inconvenienced to this point. But God's about to break their will. He's going to break their will with this. It fulfills a promise made to Moses at the burning bush. And he's giving Israel foundation for their future. It's pretty interesting here that the last time I, I got to preach in this text was at the burning bush scene where God tells him, tells Moses, yeah, you, you're going to be freed and you're going to not just be freed, you're going to take gold and silver from the people of Israel. And here again, God echoes that and says, oh, I'm going to free you, I'm going to wreck Egypt and you're going to, again, take gold and silver from them. Well, what's interesting is, is this helps establish Israel as a nation in the future, right, a, fi a financial stability but also, what do they do with some of that gold? Yeah, we're going to get to that in a couple weeks. They, they make an idol out of it. They use what God has given them for good, and they're going to spin it for evil. Because what? We're sinners. We're, we're by nature sinners. And so here, God is shaming the gods of Egypt and setting himself apart, and setting the nation of Israel apart, and he's preparing Pharaoh for the most incredible defeat he's ever imagined, right? Like, Egypt is this empire at this point in time, right? Archaeology will tell us that, that, that Egypt is a superpower. And then archaeology would also tell us that kind of overnight, Egypt just ceases to exist. Well, I have a pretty good idea how that starts. <laughs> when your whole army gets drowned... Spoiler alert. <laughs> kind of hard to have an empire when it's all at the bottom of the ocean, right? Like at the bottom of the Red Sea. This is a big deal. This is a game changer. So this is what happens. He tells them that he's going to enter in to the land at about midnight and that every firstborn in the land shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and the firstborn of the cattle. Right? This, doesn't just, this doesn't just stand for people. God is killing everything. And, and so you might 
uh, you might question yourself and say, okay, how is this just? How is this good? How is this godly that God would totally ravage a people and destroy them? Right? People would say outside of Christianity, oh, well, there's a difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God because in the Old Testament, he wreaks havoc on people and he's kind of a vengeful, spiteful, mean guy. In the New Testament, he's full of love. Well, no. He's just in both categories. Right? He's just. He's not just full of love in the New Testament. He pours out justice on Jesus, his very own flesh and blood, God incarnate. So for us to try to excuse God and say, well, this seems maybe a little heavy-handed. Right? Like you, ever, you ever read stories like this and you're like, whoa, that seems slightly unnecessary. Why do you got to kill them all? I mean, read the rest of the Old Testament. There's worse ones. Right? There's angels that go through whole encampments here in a little bit when Israel becomes a nation and wipe them all out. Why? God's just. God's just. And he's setting apart an example to show that disobedience to God himself comes with consequence. It's no different for us. We've just somehow watered it down in our society that God is not a God of consequence. When something bad happens to us, we're like, oh, karma. Oh, well, you know, the world's a tough place. Well, you know what? Maybe God's refining you sometimes. Maybe sometimes he's using the evil of the world in a way to make you better, right? Paul says that in Romans chapter 8. He works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? It doesn't say for your good. He's, he's looking out for him because he's a jealous God for his own glory and his own purpose, so how is this loving? Well, there's a few reasons. One, because he isn't just making the promise to the Egyptians. The Israelites, if they don't obey, they also die. Right? This isn't just a curse to Egypt here. Everyone who disobeys dies. So if you're Jewish, you don't just get like special permission here. You don't obey, you don't put the blood on the doorframe, firstborn dies. Right? What? So the second reason is God is jealous for his own glory. He isn't handed over to anyone, especially not mortal men. Or demons posing as gods. We have to have a better foundation for theology to see that, right, like, a lot of times we get this idea that somehow when people are worshiping other gods that they're just worshiping nothing. I don't think that's scripturally true. I think those are demons. Those are demon gods. They're worshiping demonic presences. We're seeing that in scripture, right? Like, there's reasons that things happen in Egypt and you're like, okay, Y'all remember the story a couple weeks ago where, where they come into Pharaoh and the staffs turn to snakes and all that stuff? You think it's just a magic trick? I would say, no, this is, this is demonic forces at work here trying to combat the, the plan that God has set forth. They're putting themselves into demonic belief. And when they do that, then they're disobeying the Lord. And they're setting up an idol above him. And God is for his glory, and he will not be replaced by an idol. And here's the truth of the matter for us, and this one's a tough one to swallow sometimes. We may not be worshiping golden images with hawks' heads and wings and stuff like that, like the Egyptians. We're not following Osiris, but a lot of us have idols in our lives every day, and some of them we drape in Christianity and really all we're doing is dolling up an idol. 
Right, because other people do this. We see this in the New Testament where folks come to faith in Jesus and they're like, okay, we'll follow Jesus. We'll also continue to sacrifice to our other gods. And he's like, no, 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 no. That doesn't work this way. Right, he says in the Shema, I am the Lord, your God, I am one. Singular, right? There's one God. And so for us, we can't fall into this mindset and practice that somehow he's just mean for punishing sin and disobedience. No, he's just. He's righteous. He's good. And he has every right to because we believe in a God that is sovereign over all things. The third thing we see is he's paying back what was done to his people, right? Remember the beginning of Moses' life? What happens to Moses? Pharaoh goes through and kills what? All the children over a certain age, right? He's looking to kill, to to mow down the Israelites, to, to squash a rebellion here. And Moses is kept apart from that. Does that story sound familiar? Walk through it. Guess what? As Micah said previously, the Old Testament points to Jesus. We're going to see the murder of a lot of children again. Right? Christmas story. Where Herod decides, oh no, let's mow down the kids so that we don't have anyone to take the throne from me. Kings will do a lot of crazy things in order to maintain power and authority. So will we. So will you. So will I. We will cross moral thresholds to hold power. This is partially a little bit of retribution, it seems like. And the last thing we see is why is God doing this? Why is he mowing down his people? Like, why is he killing the Egyptians? He's setting the stage for the firstborn sacrifice of Christ a thousand years later. He's setting the stage for Jesus. The 1960s pastor W.A. Criswell once said that there's a scarlet thread woven throughout all of Scripture from beginning to end, pointing to Jesus. Here's that scarlet thread. Right? So... We see this, right? He, he's setting this up, and so he says, there should be a great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Right? He makes a distinction. So the second thing this morning, if you're a note taker, is God is always playing the long game, Right? God doesn't think, he's not going in small pictures. He has eternity in perspective and mind. So for you and I, we see infant, like infantile small pictures. And so we see this story in Exodus and we're like, okay, this seems crazy. I'm sure the Israelites, they were like, okay, well, I appreciate this. I would like not being a slave. But exactly what are you doing here, God? Because God's not, he's not interested in just looking at small pictures. He's interested in the theme of eternity. He's interested in the salvation of his people. He's interested in glorifying himself because he is God. He's always playing the long game. This shouldn't surprise us, right? We're on the, we're on the, the backside of this where we've seen, oh yeah, 
He's pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He's angling at this moment in time. He is moving towards the crucifixion. Everything is pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And nothing surprises him. Right? Like, this is foreshadowing for our future. God's always planning ahead. Could you just imagine if we served a God who didn't plan ahead? I mean, sometimes I may seem organized, but there's a lot of stuff happening in my head and my office Monday through Thursday when I'm here. Like, the things that happen in this building, people would be surprised at, like, the circles that get ran and the things that I find myself or Mike finds himself or T finds himself doing on a regular basis. It's, it's not unusual to, like, randomly look outside a door and be like, what is T doing in that field? Oh, he's sprinkling ant killer for the picnic. <laughs> right? Like, a lot of times we don't plan ahead, though. Moments will happen and be like, oh, like this morning, I got here and I thought, oh, there's a baptism. I didn't feel the baptismal. Did Mike feel the baptismal? Is it going to be cold? Is it hot? I know he performed a wedding yesterday. It's good. Like, I rolled in this morning, and then I stuck my hand in there. I was like, it's not too hot, not too cold. Someone planned ahead. <laughs> right? Like, a lot of those things, they just right by me because things are spinning all around. Could you imagine if we served a God like that? This world would be chaos. The crazy part is there are people who believe that. There are people who, who just believe that somehow we cosmically, like, together, and everything's just hanging in orbit and spinning and working like it's supposed to. By, I don't know, gravity, some kind of scientific thing. It makes zero sense to me. I'm like, that's a, that's a lot of things that have to function in order for you to get human life and human life with some sort of semblance in order. But here we are. We serve a God who's not surprised by things. You think he was surprised by Moses saying, um, God, I don't, I don't talk real good. No. There's a reason that Aaron was born and lived. Right? You, you think that God was surprised that Moses, like a knucklehead, knucklehead, killed somebody and ran into the wilderness? Nah. Right? He met him there with a burning bush. There's a purpose in it. Right? He sent Moses on a mission. And so you think he's surprised by Pharaoh's response to all these plagues? No. He orchestrates it. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us, right? Verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. And we serve a God who understands, is sovereign, and plays the long game. Right? The enemies of God have to acknowledge his power. That's what he says just a few verses before that. He says, in these all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out to Pharaoh in hot anger, which is just terrifying when you read a verse that says, And he went out to Pharaoh in hot anger. He's not talking about Moses here. Read the context. God went out to Pharaoh in hot anger. Woo! It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, right? Scripture teaches us that. Some of us don't understand or have a right understanding of the fear of the Lord. 
That's a whole other sermon for us. But if he falls like Pharaoh, he's on the wrong end of this deal. It says that the people bow down and beg him to leave. Right? They understand. The enemies of God will acknowledge God's power. That should sound familiar. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's playing chess while we're playing checkers. Right? He knows what he's doing. So with that in mind, as we dive into chapter 12, where this, this whole last plague is going to become the Passover celebration. And uh, it's a lot of verses, so I'm not going to read all of them. We just don't have time for that this morning. But at the beginning, he says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month for year, uh, of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both male and both man and beast, and of all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. There's another point for this idea and thought that, that these are not just inanimate objects, that these are demons that he's enacting judgment on. He said, I'm the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you, and when I strike, when I strike the land of Egypt." This shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it a feast. And so, what does this symbolize? First thing it symbolizes for us is new beginnings. It symbolizes new beginnings, right? That's what he says at the beginning here. The Lord said to Moses, this month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It's new beginnings. The Jews, the Jews had adopted an Egyptian calendar and day system, which began at sunrise and the first month was spring due to the moon cycle, right? The Egyptians worshipped uh, a moon god uh, among other gods, and so their calendar reflected that. And so for here, he's saying, no, you're gonna, this is going to be a new foundation, a new beginning for you. This is the new setup to your calendar. Now, eventually, the Jews' calendar kind of rotates and moves around, but forever, Nisan, the month of Nisan in the spring, is when they celebrate the Passover. That's important for us as a future because... When Jesus comes along the scene, when is he crucified? At the Passover. It's a big deal. Right? The symbolism is there for a reason. There's a reason all these things coincide and overlap with one another. 
The fact that, that where the temple is located in Jerusalem and the Garden of Gethsemane, that as Jesus moves to the garden to pray for his people, for you and for me, that he crosses over this bridge that would be flowing with water and blood from the sacrifices of the Passover lambs. It's a big deal. This is new beginnings. For Israel, this is a new foundation to a system that they're going to live out for the rest of their days. For us, this symbolizes the new beginnings of Christ. The fact that what we just watched in baptism, you were buried in the death of Christ and you were raised to walk in new life. The blood shed is new beginnings for you, right? That's what Jesus says when he celebrates the Passover with his disciples and he says, this is the cup of my new covenant in my blood and this is my body broken for you. He's taking the elements that they're celebrating from this event and saying, all these things point to me. All these things point to what I'm about to do. All of this is significant for you and I as Christians. Because they all point to Jesus. It's new beginnings. The second thing we see is that it's cleansing of sin. The instructions are to cook a year old lamb that has been set apart for, uh, for several days and made clean. And the lamb is for a household. And then it's, if it's too much, you split with your neighbor. Why? Why is this important? Why are these details important? Because once killed and it's blood spread, it's to be eaten so that there's nothing left. It's to be eaten so there's nothing left because it's not that God is like a member of PETA and wants, you know, no leftover animal parts like ethical treatment here. No. The eating of the lamb is symbolic of an inward cleansing. He's saying put the blood so that death passes over you and then eat this animal to symbolize that you have been made clean. Right? That's what we do in communion. This is my body, broken for you. It's the same idea, that we are called to eat and take in of Christ, be made new, and be cleansed from the inside out. It symbolizes cleansing. The third thing we see is that it symbolizes celebration. They're called to celebrate for generations this day of salvation that is given to them. Freedom. They're given instructions to wear, of what to wear while they eat, and then replicate that with a feast for future generations, right? They're told to put their belt on, to put their sandals on, and be ready to move in haste, right? To, to be prepared for the Lord to take action and to move them. That's what's happening here. He's saying, you don't have time to leaven your bread. You don't have time to eat your meal, then change clothes, Right, this is like when you were a kid and your mom was like, Mm-mm, no, shoes on. You do not have time for that. Eat, eat, you're eating a Pop-Tart on the way. You missed breakfast. You slept in. I'm not saying communion is like a Pop-Tart. Don't take that out of context. <laughs> Although, when we had those little communion cups, I think a Pop-Tart tastes better than that little wafer in there. <laughs> I think it's like styrofoam. <laughs> right, like, he's telling him to be prepared for God to move. This is a call to action. For you and for I. Like th th this applies to us in the future generations that we're called to action. Right? This is why we should think of Easter as a celebration. Right? There's a reason that on Easter Sunday everybody wants to dress up and look fancy and sing loud and be happy. There's a different energy in the room on Easter. Why? Because it is a celebration. Here's the question, church. Why isn't every Sunday a celebration? Why isn't every single time we gather on the Lord's Day a joyful celebration of the fact that Christ has died for us? That he was the lamb and the death has passed you over. 
for all eternity. That's good news. It should be a celebration for us. The next thing that it symbolizes is rising in growth. They're told not to leaven the bread, which if you've ever watched uh, one of my personal favorite shows on Netflix, The Great British Bake Off, or Great British Baking Show, depending on which channel you've watched it on, uh, you'd know how important the process of leavening is to anything baked goods. Right, like, there's a reason we don't eat crackers for birthdays. Right, we eat cake because it's fluffy and it's delicious. Right, nobody's ever been like, hmm, I think I would like a saltine cracker. I'd like a nice pita for my birthday. No, 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 we want cake, we want it leavened, we want that, that rise. You, you watch the Great British Bacon Show and, and Paul Hollywood is over there and he's like, mm, yeah, this has been underproved, which I didn't know what that term meant. Or that, did you know that the little drawer on the bottom of your oven, proving drawer, you're supposed to apparently put your, your dough in there so it can rise. I thought it was pan storage. Because <laughs> in my household growing up, we put the pans under the, in the little drawer. We still put the pans in the drawer. I said, I'm not British. We don't proof things. I don't know. He, he'll, he'll talk about it. He'll be like, mm, this is underproofed. Or, oh, you let this proof for too long. Or this has to have a double proof. Well, you let it rise. You fold it in, and then you let it rise again. You know, very fancy. He says, right, Moses from God says, don't do any of that. No leavening. You don't have time for it to rise. You don't have time for it to, to swell up because it's a long process. If you ever bake bread, you know, like, you make your dough, you add your yeast, and you have to let that stuff activate and rise. And sometimes it's hours, if not, like, a really long period of time, depending on what you're doing. So you add your leavening agent, and then you put, like, a cover over your bowl, and you let it rise until it doubles in size. And then some recipes have you flour that thing out, roll it back out, put it back in your bowl, and let it rise again. You're trying to build up the gluten in it, unless you're gluten-free, and then you're not building any gluten, Right? If you're gluten-free, you really love the Exodus. <laughs> ain't, ain't no gluten in your bread. Right? Sorry, that was a bad joke. <laughs> I apologize to my gluten-free people in here and the rest of us pro-glutens. <laughs> fight on. Fight the good fight. Eat, eat your white bread. Um, we're called to rise in growth, though, right? He tells them. He says, you don't have time for, for this to, to leaven. Don't put a leavening agent. That's what he says. He says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel it's intense on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly and on the seventh day a holy assembly no work shall be done on those days but everyone needs to eat that uh, that alone may be prepared by you and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Why is the leavening such a big deal? Well, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Paul's echoing this sentiment here. He's saying, this is a call to action. Rise in growth. Throw away the old leaven of malice and hate and the sin of your life and take on unleavened bread. Be unleavened. Why? Well, unleavened doesn't need to be prepared and messed with. An unleavened loaf, you mix the ingredients together and there it is. For you and I, he's calling us to be holy as he is holy. Right? He's sanctifying us and he's adjusting us, but the desire is for us to be new in Christ and live like Christ. That's the call to be unleavened. And the last thing we see is this. It symbolizes death. They're told uh, to take, in uh, verse 21, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. And when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. He tells them to grab hyssop branches. Why, why hyssop? Why blood? Why the doorposts? Well, there's a couple different reasons and thoughts here. One, blood is a life source. Right? Your body doesn't function if you don't have blood pumping through it. Blood is necessary for life. It is a symbol of life and death. Why the threshold? Well, that's where you begin and enter or come out of your house. It is the main entry point where you're going. He's saying, put that over there so that as you pass through that blood, just as Abraham did, right, if you go way back, Abraham has to sacrifice, the animal is split, and God passes through the blood. So you and I, in this moment, pass through the blood from death to life. Right? On the outside of that door is death. On the inside of that door, covered by the blood, is life. You and I pass from death to life and are covered by the blood of Christ. Man, the symbolism is rich. Why hyssop? I had to do some research. You know what hyssop is? It's a weird bush that grows in the middle of the desert, right? We don't have hyssop. You can't walk out of your door and get hyssop. But hyssop, being a strange word, actually appears a couple times in the scripture. You know where else it appears? I heard some murmurs there. So some of y'all know. Right, it, it shows up again at the crucifixion where it says they take a hyssop branch and they put on the bitter wine and bring it up to touch it to Jesus' lips. Right, the hyssop is something that symbolizes death. In the moment of this, it is what delivers the blood. In the moment of crucifixion, it is what delivers the sour taste of death to Jesus' lips. But he doesn't drink it. He spits it out because he's not going to just die. He knows he's resurrecting. He knows this isn't the end for him. Man, Exodus is so rich in symbolism. So rich in symbolism. Lastly, most, we have to address the most obvious component, and I will wrap up in just a second here. 
The Passover is a sacrifice to God to save them from God's wrath. That's what he says right here. What you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Right? We want to we easily try to get God off the hook here. Right? A lot, of, a lot of folks would say, oh, the angel of death passes through. I grew up hearing that. We've seen movies, and it's an angel that passes through. But that's not what Scripture teaches us, is it? No, Scripture teaches us that it says the Lord himself is who passes through. The Lord is who delivers justice. The Lord is the one who passes over. This is not an action of an angel. This is God himself delivering divine justice just as he delivers justice onto Jesus because of our sin. All right, we don't have to get God off the hook here. I remember a couple years ago there was a, a guy who wrote a book uh, and he, he did a little promo video video for the book and in the promo video he said what gets subtly caught and taught in the church is that Jesus saves you from God don't let that subtly get caught and taught here it shouldn't be subtle at all Jesus saves you from the wrath of God the Father because you are sinful and I am sinful and Jesus died in our place to absorb that wrath Because God is just and we can't enter into his presence with our sin, but by the blood of Christ, we can now enter into the presence of God. That's the richness of the scriptures. The whole story of Exodus, this last plague, all of this wraps up to get to this point that you and I are covered by the blood of Christ so that we are passed over from death to life. Like I said earlier, that W.A. Criswell quote, a scarlet thread of redemption is woven throughout Scripture. It traces God's unfolding plan of love to redeem fallen mankind. From Genesis to Revelation, this red ribbon represents our need for an innocent blood sacrifice. Ultimately, God sent his son to die on that cross as the sacrifice for all of our sins. That's the truth of Exodus. That's the truth of of the Psalms, of Proverbs, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of Romans, of Jude, of Revelation, that Jesus has come to save you. But if you want to have that conversation, if you don't know what it means to follow Jesus this morning, come, have that conversation. Some of our prayer leaders will be down here, and they'd love to have that conversation. Our elders are here. They'd love to have that conversation. Mike and I would love to have that conversation. Come to the altar Seek forgiveness. If you have that relationship, then this is a call to be reminded of the goodness of God and the redemption for your sins and the mercy that a just and righteous God has shown us. May we always be reminded of that. I'll pray and we'll sing together.